Millions of women worldwide swear by Ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Theralogics for balancing hormone levels. Theralogics also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Theralogics products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Theralogics, supplements from science. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Beaton with the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, here with my two fantastic co-hosts, the adventurous and adorable Abby Eblen, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center, <laughs> and the sensationally stunning Susan, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. How are you doing? Good. Doing great. Okay. So, Abby, you just showed us your uh, beverage of the evening, which, wait, no. Susan. Who who just held it up? The redheaded one. Her name's Susan. Yeah, the sensationally stunning one. That one, not the adorable one. Got it. Yes. It's my beautiful purple 40-ounce Stanley (laughs) that I got for Christmas. I have to say, it was one of my favorite Christmas presents this year. But it's so funny. Like, I go to my office, and I think we look like a Stanley, like, commercial. Because everybody... What, what, is up? what is up with Stanleys? I went it's to my so get my hair done this week, and my hairdresser was like, look what I got for Christmas. And she was, I'm like, okay. And it's a Stanley, and it's got a handle, and it fits in my cup holder. And she was going, she should have been on a commercial for a Stanley. And then I had a patient that was talking about her Stanley, too. What is up with Stanleys? So I had a... Uh, a friend who is talking all about, oh, the Stanley Cup this and the Stanley Cup that and the Stanley Cup this and the Stanley Cup that. And I'm a huge hockey fan. So when I hear Stanley Cup, I think of a huge silver trophy with a ton of hockey players' names on it that just has come through Vegas in the last year. And so it's still a hot topic here. And so I'm wondering, like, what the hell is this? Here, are you rubbing that? Are you kind of rubbing that in my face? Because it hadn't been a hot topic in Nashville for a while. I am not rubbing <laughs> it in face I did see the Stanley Cup. I did see the Stanley Cup a few years ago, but it didn't go to the right team then. But anyway, I digress. Yeah, details. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was like, what the hell is she, like, how does she have contact with the Stanley Cup? And that doesn't make sense at all. And then about three weeks later, somebody said, somebody <laughs> told me, oh, Stanley Cup is a new big thing. And I felt like an idiot, but I was convinced <laughs> for three weeks. What the hell is she talking about? Well, so what's the I, big deal about them? What's the big deal? So they they really, really do keep ice and cold things really cold, like all day long. So if you put like maybe this much ice in it and you fill Uh it up, you will still have ice tomorrow morning. Oh, okay. Well, but the Yeti's like that too. How is it different than a Yeti? I have tons of Yetis. I have never had anything that actually insulates this well. Okay. And I am not a water drinker. I mean, you know me, like, that's just not what I do. Yeah. I'm doing so much better with this. And you can get the little, the little straws, you can get replacement straws. So I just like switch out the straws every day. And then I wash the cup every few days because I'm like, yeah, and I'm the only person drinking out of it. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's, it's really convenient and they're, they're fun and they're pretty. And 
Uh, I know they fit in your cup holder in your car too. That's the Yetis they don't do, do that as it and they have a handle. They have a handle too. They have a handle. Like I don't like holding it like normally with the handle when it's full. It's almost too heavy. I like rest my hand on it. You know, yeah. stick it through. Um, mm. But yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. I mean, it's like the female gadget of the year. I think is what happened. Um, but like, it's fun. It's fun. You should. Yeah, have- my hairdresser said her mother had to drive around to all these stores because she's convinced she wanted to get her the Stanley Cup, and she finally found one. And they're all different. Everyone I've seen is very different. Different colors. Mm-hmm. One had one of them had patterns on them. Little thingies to put on the bases that are rubbery, which I do think oh. that make it one. It helps protect it some, but they're also like decorative, so it, you can have like flowers or oh, okay. other little things. So, man. I feel, I feel gypped. I didn't get one of those for Christmas this year. Maybe next year. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay. Now that that burning question has been answered of what the hell is a Stanley Cup, if not a trophy, um, do we have a question of the day? We do have a question of the day. All right. Thank you so much for your podcast. Thank you for listening to us. Um, my partner, uh, 29, and I, 26, have been trying to conceive for three years. I have thin PCOS, no male factor. We've tried letrozole. However, I never responded to any dosages, 2.55, 7.5, and 9. And quickly Ooh. moved to gonal F. On gonal F, I either didn't respond or over-responded 15 plus follicles, um, resulting That's called in an IVF cycle. Yes. <laughs> we moved on to IVF. They retrieved 39 eggs. 16 fertilized stark drop off and we ended up with six days five blasts untested so far we have completed two fets for both we had a lining of 7.2 millimeters with both patches and vaginal estrogen and both failed to implant any suggestions about next steps should we contemplate more testing if so what or is this likely a case of bad luck i think there's definitely more testing to be done Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Um, in general, I, I'm never going to argue with a 26 year old who says, I don't really want to do PGT testing because for the most part they're like, you can get away without it and you can get away without it just fine. This might be a case where it would have been helpful. Now. I don't know that anybody could have foreseen that like above and beyond. Um, there's a lot of people just do PGT on absolutely everybody, but particularly when you're trying to control costs, that's, that is an easier thing to not Mm -hmm. do, but that may be more relevant here. Now, the good news about it is that if this is a chromosomal issue with the embryos, you just have to keep on going because you will eventually hit the embryo that's normal. Mm -hmm. Um, and statistically the odds are likely that at least one of those little guys is normal. The question is, are you going to figure that out? Are you going to find it on your sixth FET, which Mm -hmm. gets to be physically, emotionally, mentally draining. Um, and so that's one thing to, to think about and to consider, do you want to take the risk of thawing your embryos and, biopsying them. But the bigger thing that pops out is that your lining's not that thick. And especially when you consider where you might have started off with, you know, if you started off with a lining of two millimeters and and progressed to seven, that's that's a little different than if you started off at like four to five and then progressed to seven. But um your lining's kind of on the thin side. And mm-hmm. so I'm really curious about that. And so wondering if different protocols might be helpful, wondering if a um hysteroscopy to take a look inside super helpful, you know, biopsies, all that stuff. What do you guys think? 
Yeah, the one comment I was going to make on a little bit different note is she was really surprised that she got 39 eggs and 16 fertilized. You know, it's not uncommon in PCOS patients, even young PCOS patients, to see that. Your body only makes so many eggs so well. I usually say the sweet spot's about 20 to 25. Much beyond that, a lot of the eggs, from even from young PCOS patients, are just not very good. Your body just can't make those eggs that well. And so, and a lot of those could have been immature eggs as well. Um, immature eggs don't fertilize and don't develop. And so I've had, I usually try and always tell my young PCOS patients, don't be surprised if we get a bunch of eggs, but you don't have a lot of blastocysts. But I would argue though, that 16 that fertilized and having six blasts is pretty normal for somebody your age. I mean, you know, granted with that many eggs, you think you get so much more, but you know, it's quality, not quantity that you're really going for. So um, I think with your, you know, if they do another protocol, they may kind of amp it down a little bit. So maybe you can make a smaller number of eggs a little bit better, a little, and maybe be a little bit more mature. So I would comment on when we're looking at PGT testing and you're, you know, for other people who are trying to learn from this, realize that depending on how much it costs at your specific clinic, PGT testing is essentially going to be approximately the, the same cost as a frozen embryo transfer. Correct. Yeah. And so if you're sitting here with two failed cycles, you still have four embryos remaining. We roll the dice wrong one time, you would have paid for your PGT. So it's, it is something to consider, especially if you're, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh, well, I don't need to do PGT because I'm going to have so many embryos. In some cases, that actually makes like even more sense than if we only have one or two embryos. Um, so th that's something to think about. The lining, I'm not quite as concerned about uh, just because you comment that you are a lean PCOS person. The data when it looks at lightings, really, if it's seven or above, should have relatively similar outcomes. And that number that we, I mean, Carrie kind of alluded to, kind of whatever your delta is, what you started with and what you changed to and what the appearance of your lining is probably much more important than what that absolute factor is. But I definitely think a hysteroscopy would be a very worthwhile thing. Um, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't lose hope. The other thing is if you end up getting to a point where you have to do another cycle, like Abby said, they may do something a little more gentle. So maybe we don't have quite as big of a drop. We also didn't mention whether or not you did standard insemination versus ICSI. And so even though we don't have male factor, it, it takes a lot of, if you did standard insemination, it takes a lot for the right sperm to get into those eggs. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but your, your progress, once things fertilize, we expect somewhere between a third to a half of embryos that fertilize to actually get to that expanded blastocyst state that it can either be biopsied or cryopreserved. And so, you know, I think, I think that would be a, what happened was very good from the lab standpoint. Hey, and I just want to say one thing, and I'm sorry we didn't say this earlier, but Susan is in a really great position to give you a cost analysis because she is now an MBA. She got her MBA at Christmas. I can't believe we didn't mention that earlier. So now she has a bunch of letter, a bunch more letters after her name. So MD, MBA. So congratulations, Susan. Impressive. Thank you. Thank you so much. It, you know, <laughs> it, it was definitely... Um, a journey. It, it's a journey that took a really <laughs> long time. It's actually the degree that took me the longest, except for like my <laughs> high school diploma. So, um, but I did it a little bit at a time and um, it's, it's, but it's, you did good, it. That's awesome. it's good to know um, different aspects of what we do. That's fantastic. Yay. Yay. Thank you. Okay. So today our topic is going to be ectopic pregnancies. And so 
Let's get started with just basic definitions. So what what are all the ways that people describe ectopic pregnancies? Most well, I can call it a tubal pregnancy. Mm-hmm. That's the most common, probably. Mm-hmm. Most simply, it's a it's a pregnancy that's in the wrong place. And so sometimes that tubal pregnancy is actually a misnomer because yeah. pregnancies can actually end up in all kinds of funky places that they're not supposed to be. Yes. So how often do these occur, like... In the wild, about one to two percent of the population, roughly. Okay, and then what? What kind of incidents do we see? How frequently does it happen in people with known tubal problems? Either you know, from any of the different ways that you can have tubal problems, when you've got an issue, what what does that do to your risk of ectopics? It's definitely going to raise your risk. I mean, I think some of it depends on you know if you've had tubal surgery. I mean, I'd say your risks are probably around 20%, um, depending on what's gone on. Um, you know, tubes tubes are, are funky things. You know, they're not just little pipelines. Um, they're actually very delicate. Um, they are delicate pipelines, but they have little things within them, little, little projections that help get egg and embryo and sperm all in the right directions. And, you know, the, if things aren't moving correctly there, the, it can cause an issue. Well, let me, I was going to mention too, I know we have a really savvy audience, but you know, I don't, there's a lot of things I don't know that I probably should know. (laughs) And I think one thing I think a lot of people are really surprised about is that fertilization doesn't take place in the uterus. So when the sperm Mm -hmm. is deposited through intercourse in the vagina, the sperm has to swim through um, the cervix up into the uterine cavity and actually has to swim all the way to the very end of the fallopian tube. The egg, which is amazing, is popped out, released in the body cavity and you're end of your fallopian tube is almost like a little vacuum cleaner and it sucks that egg up. And if you ever look at a picture of of an egg and a sperm, what you can see is that the egg looks gigantic, ginormous. It's the largest cell that you have in your body compared to the sperm. So if even if the tube is open, meaning fluid can go through there, sometimes what happens is the sperm, they're a little bitty and they can get through all these little nooks and crannies. They can get through, they can fertilize that really big egg. And then the egg takes about five days to get all the way back through the fallopian tube into the uterus. And so the most common location for an ectopic pregnancy is a tubal pregnancy. But like Susan said, it can happen a lot of other places too. Um, But the biggest problem is the egg is really large and it just can't fit all the way through the tube if there's scar tissue. So it gets caught up in the tube, um, thus tubal pregnancy then. And also know that there's some other things that can increase your risk of having an ectopic pregnancy. Like if you're a nicotine user, that actually is an independent risk factor. Um, If you've had any infections like gonorrhea or chlamydia in the past, um, it's one of those times that chlamydia is really hard because lots of people have had chlamydia infections, but they're not necessarily symptomatic. Whereas gonorrhea Mm -hmm. infections, you tend to have really icky green discharge, so things get treated pretty fast. But chlamydia, I mean, sometimes people get infections and they can be kind of indolent and just kind of hang around for quite a while and and they can wreak quite a bit of havoc on those fallopian tubes. Um, Also, people who have had um, inflammatory bowel disease can have tubal issues. People who have endometriosis um, can have issues, just just to name some of the other things that aren't quite as obvious as what, as what it's surgery it too. Like if you've had a major surgery, like bowel surgery or something like that, that can also cause obstruction of your fallopian tubes as Ruptured well. Ruptured appendix. Ruptured oh, appendix. Yeah. Terrible, terrible, terrible. I can tell you, if you've had a ruptured appendix, even if you have a normal HSG, I'm always going to be nervous about yes. your fallopian tubes. 
Yeah, that's what you can say. When somebody says they have a ruptured or had an appendix, you're out. The first question is, was it ruptured or did they get it out in time? If they say it's ruptured, I think all of our antennas like go up and go up because we really do worry about the higher risk of ectopic pregnancy. That's a big one. Mm -hmm. And then another one is just a history of a prior ectopic pregnancy. Yes. If you've had one, our radar is so much higher that you're going to have another one. Um, Another thing that always makes us kind of think twice is someone who's had a bunch of miscarriages, but none of them ever got big enough to be seen in the uterus yeah. because always when, biochemicals. Because we don't know if that biochemical was in your uterus or yeah. that biochemical was actually tube. in your tube. Yep, exactly. So how do we once we go through all of the testing? You know, there are going to be some things which are obvious tip-offs in in the history. What kind of tests can we do to look at the integrity of the tubes before we do whatever kind of treatment we're doing? So we can do a saline sonogram with tubal patency, or we can do an HSG. And an HSG, if I'm worried about tubes, that really is the test I'm going to go for because you can really see the x-ray picture. Um, You can see the dye go through. It's a little more obvious or a lot more obvious, I think, to look at the tube. The one key thing I always have to remind myself is, is for most patients, we don't worry about tubal infection or reinfection. We do it. But if we're worried that your tubes could be blocked or that you could have had a pelvic infection that caused the blockage of the tube, we generally like to treat you ahead of time with an antibiotic. And if your doctor doesn't say anything about that, you might want to go, hey, maybe we should treat with antibiotic because every now and then, and it's one of those things doesn't happen often, but boy, when it happens, you never forget it. Every now and then, every four or five years, we'll have a patient that we didn't suspect or for whatever reason can get really infected and even have to get hospitalized after that type of procedure. And it's sort of a catch-22. The only way to really analyze the tubes is to do the HSG test where we put fluid through or to do surgery. And so, you know, we don't want to jump to do surgery just to look at the tubes. So um, if you've had a tubal infection, we always want to check or do that too to minimize your risk of a reinfection that would cause further problems. When someone does have to have surgery for whatever reason and and tubes are a question at all, what can we do during the surgery to identify, you know, to, to look for potential risk factors? So it depends on what type of surgery you're doing. So if you're doing a laparoscopy or a laparotomy, so we're actually looking inside the belly, um, we can put a little catheter or a little tube inside the uterus. And we typically inject a blue dye through the fallopian tubes so that we can see the kind of full shape of the fallopian tubes and also see if they are open. So that's one way to tell how those fallopian tubes are appearing. Um, If you are having an a hysteroscopy, so a procedure where we're looking inside the uterus, um, I'll often do an HSG while my patients are under anesthesia. So um, if I have somebody who's had an abnormal HSG, either with one or two block tubes, they have polyps, they need to have a hysteroscopy 10, I'll often do an HSG at that point. And I would say nine times out of 10, the tubes end up being open and healthy appearing. But, you know, we also get a good idea on if there truly is a blockage. Mm-hmm. Some of the other things that you can look at when you're doing laparoscopic procedures are just what's the overall appearance of the tube? Because you can have mm-hmm. a tube that's intact that looks like a big, fat, ugly, little <laughs> sausage. mess. Yeah, yeah. When you're really hoping for like a spaghetti strand. So sometimes just the, the eyeball the test is very helpful. Yeah, and so even, even if the tube in that situation, like you're alluding to, even if the tube is open, meaning dye spills out, open doesn't necessarily mean normal. And normal means 
normal fimbria with those little finger-like projections at the end that can suck that egg up. And so, you know, sometimes even on HSG, if we'll see a lock, we can see a tube and kind of identify that it may have delayed spill, meaning normally it, it's kind of almost like putting, you know, like blue, blue um, food coloring in, in a cup you know, of water, you see it disperse, you see the, the dye disperse really rapidly. Well, it's sort of the same way when you're looking at an HSG. If the tube's pretty normal, the dye will shoot through pretty quickly and will disperse through the cavity pretty quickly, meaning it'll kind of go all over the cavity. Whereas if the tube is loculated, sometimes what you can see is you see a little bit of dye come out, but like Carrie said, it's this big sausage say mass and it, you know, it may eventually completely you know, all the contents may come out of the tube, but it goes a lot slower and it looks more like a sausage during most of the actual procedure. And that's when you know you've got to be concerned about, even though the tube's open, it's probably a damaged tube that's not going to function well and is going to increase the risk of that topic. Mm-hmm. So let's say somebody comes in and um, she has no risk factors for ectopic pregnancy. What are the things that start to make our antenna go up and and start quivering of, no, I don't know about this, when when we're taking a look at her in early pregnancy? What are the things we need to worry about and watch for? So one of the first thing we're going to start watching are hormone levels. And the two hormone levels we're going to pay the most attention to are your HCG hormone or human chorionic gonadotropin um, and your progesterone level. Um, HCG it is produced by the pregnancy, and we know that there should be a certain amount of rise. Now, colloquially, we often talk about doubling HCG levels. Realistically, there's lots of normal pregnancies that do not fully double mm-hmm. every 48 hours, okay? Um, if you do not increase by at least 60% every 48 hours, we are becoming much more concerned. And what happens with HCG is sometimes we may have a slow rise, but then we should start kind of seeing it skyrocket. So watching that over the time period that we know, hey, this person got pregnant approximately this point, and we know what we should be seeing on ultrasound and what we should be seeing you know, with that HCG level, you know, if you have an HCG level of 300 and you're six weeks pregnant, that's that's not a normal pregnancy. Um, progesterone levels, I, I'm a big fan of not paying too much attention to progesterone levels because realize that progesterone levels actually go up and down many times a day. Okay. So, but if you have a progesterone level less than five, there's a much higher risk that it may be an abnormal pregnancy, especially an ectopic pregnancy. One thing I always say to med students and residents, there's when it comes to ectopic, the rule is there is no rule. I mean, like Susan said, we all look at HCG levels, but I find of all the things through my career that I've tried to diagnose, I mean, ectopics can present so many different ways and just there's so many nuances. And so one thing I would say, make sure that you see somebody that's used to dealing with ectopic pregnancies. You know, in in my past, I've had a patient one time that showed up in an emergency room and her, her HCG level was around 600 and she had really bad pain and she, her heart rate was really fast and she'd had kidney stones before. So the person who was on call at this academic institution had her do, you know, looked to make sure she didn't have a kidney stone and she didn't. And they're like, well, I'm not really sure what's going on, but you don't have a kidney stone. And when they looked with ultrasound, they didn't see any ectopic 
pregnancy in your fallopian tube, well, for anybody in the know, 600, you're not going to see an ectopic at that point. But she had all the symptoms that made would make you terrified if you were in the know. But oh my gosh, not only did she have an ectopic, it may be ruptured. And as it turned out, she made it through the weekend. But that's exactly what happened on Monday morning. I don't know when it ruptured, but on Monday morning, she had an ectopic pregnancy that had ruptured. And so, um, so it's just really scary. You just there's no real rule, but as Susan said, you really do follow the HCG levels, and that's really all that we can do is follow the HCG levels and follow the symptoms of the patient really, really closely. So, you know, if your doctor tells you to come back every two days and you look at them like, look, I, I live far away. I can't drive. I, you know, it's expensive to get this HCG level done every two days. Just know that we have your best interest in, at heart. And you know, if we're asking you to do that, this, I mean, this is a life-threatening condition, uh, condition. And in third world countries, the number one leading cause of death in the first and second trimester are ectopic pregnancies that rupture. So if your doctor is asking you to do it, heed their warnings because they know what they're talking about. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or recurrent pregnancy loss, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX testing. If found, uterine inflammation can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. So... One question that I hear very commonly when when I tell someone, hey, your levels don't look quite right, they're not behaving as they should be, the first question is always, well, just do an ultrasound. Why don't why haven't you ordered an ultrasound yet? So <laughs> why haven't I ordered the ultrasound? So there there is something that we call the discriminatory zone. Um, and essentially, as Abby had just mentioned, um in a regular pregnancy, we're generally not going to see something very definitive until we start getting an HCG level around 1500. Now, as our ultrasound machines get better and technology gets better, you know, that number is going to gradually get lower and lower. Okay. And sometimes we do ultrasounds even when it's lower, because if you have a rupturing mm -hmm. ectopic pregnancy, we can see we things see like that. blood in your <laughs> pelvis or a very enlarged tube. There are things that we can see, but often what we do is we do an ultrasound and we see nothing that's significant. Or it's like, hmm, there's maybe something over here, but we need to keep an eye on it. Like it could be bowel with some poop in it. We won't say that, yeah. too, but it could be bowel with some poop in it. Yeah. Or it could be a mess. <laughs> and so you know, oftentimes we're going to be doing ultrasounds. And, and like Abby said, this is something that can change very quickly. So, I mean, there everyone has a story of somebody who came in, got evaluated, they were stone cold, stable and normal. And two hours later, they were in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And so having good access to care. I mean, I, we've all had that person who were worried about an ectopic and they're like, oh, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. And <laughs> like, that's a really bad idea. I, I mean, because yes. it, it really, I mean, there aren't a lot of things in fertility that we do that are life and death situations. Thank goodness. Okay. But an ectopic pregnancy could be. And if you have a pregnancy of unknown location, meaning we can't say if it's in the tube or in the uterus, doing activities where you are not near available medical care within probably about bad idea. 30 to 45 <laughs> minutes is a bad idea. Bad idea. <laughs>
This is not the weekend to get on a plane. This is not the weekend to go camping. This is not the weekend or cruise ship or uh, transatlantic slide or mm -hmm. (laughs) doing things. This is not the weekend to run the marathon, the half marathon. All the super active stuff. We're probably going to tell you don't have sex. Um, Nothing that's going to jostle around those internal organs that could potentially cause a problem. So let's talk about what you look for and what you might potentially see when you do an ultrasound that makes you feel a little bit better or a little bit worse. A little bit better would be you look inside and you see this little sac right inside the uterus where it's supposed to be. That makes you feel pretty good. And 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 one step further, if you see a little sac inside a sac, that makes th- that's called the yolk sac. That makes you think this really is truly a pregnancy inside the uterus. Every now and then there's been reports of people who bleed inside and and inside their uterus. It looks like there's a sac there, but really it's just that blood that sort of forms a a circle there that makes it look like there's a sac. So sometimes if it's real early, we may go, well, it looks like it's a sac with a baby in it, but we can't see the baby right now. And it's really small. So kind of like Susan said, we'll see you back in two days and look again. And so, um, but if you see a sac in the uterus, that makes you feel good. If they're, HCG level is around 1,500 or 2,000 and you see nothing, that makes you feel really nervous at that point. Mm-hmm. Or you can start sometimes in the area that, the, so normally on ultrasound, we should not be able to see a fallopian tube, okay? Generally, if we see a fallopian tube, it's abnormal. It's bad. <laughs> so if you have an ectopic pregnancy in your fallopian tube and you're starting to have some bleeding, um, or we can sometimes just see that gestational sac and yolk sac. And sometimes we can even see a little fetal pole inside the tube or near an ovary or that's bad in, in all those places. So some of the other kind of weird places you can have an ectopic pregnancy. Um, if you've had a C-section, you can have an ectopic pregnancy in your C-section scar. You can have it in your cervix. So like where the baby comes out really, really low in the uterus, that is also very dangerous. You can have it... Um, in what we call the cornea, so right where the uterus and the fallopian tube kind of meet each other. So that's that's another place. And sometimes an ectopic pregnancy can actually be just free-floating in the abdomen. So like not necessarily on the any of those things that we normally think of, but it can just be in a random space. Um, and so that's, that's, those are some of the things uh, in, uh, when we're also looking at those other things on ultrasound, if we see fluid in your pelvis, I was just about is, to say that one. That's that scary. Is, that is scary because that fluid is probably blood, blood, which yeah. means you need to go to the ER and you are going to need to have a surgery now. That's the one thing I think that with experience and like I said, experienced person is really, it's really important because it's, there's a lot of subtle things that you look at that you don't even really think about, but you, in your mind, you're like weighing it against all the other people you've seen. And one of those things is fluid in the pelvis. And that's one of the very few things that when I've seen that, it's never failed me. It's, it's always been an ectopic every time I've seen fluid in there. And, you know, in those cases, generally, if it's a situation where a patient is not symptomatic at that point, but they have fluid there, I usually say, you know, we probably just need to look laparoscopically because I don't feel comfortable sending you home with this. Because like Susan said, you know, hour or two later, you may rupture. And so, you know, I think it's one of those things we don't want to do surgeries if we don't need to, because you can also, which we'll talk about in a minute, treat this medically if you catch it early enough. But, you know, it's it's life-threatening. And if it's at the point where, 
you think it's pretty high likelihood it's in the tube. You may be wrong, but it, I think in that situation, it's better to err on the side of doing surgery and being wrong than the other way around, erring on the side of, oh, it's probably okay. <laughs> go go ahead and head on back to home to Kentucky and we'll see you in you know, a couple yeah. of hours again. And, and it's <laughs> also important to know that if you need to have surgery, I mean, we can do surgery in the middle of the night if we need to, if you have this type of situation. But if we're suspecting this in the middle of the day and we want to take you to the operating room and you're like, oh, can't we wait until seven o'clock after my partner gets home from work and they can watch the other child or whatever, you know, thing it is. Know that anything we can do during working hours is, is going to be less risky. And so we can do this anytime, day or night, but the, the best outcomes are going to happen under a controlled circumstance. Yeah. And you just have people there that are used to doing laparoscopy every day, you know, nothing wrong with the weekend teams or the night teams. But a lot of times those are people that don't do a lot of laparoscopy during the day. So they don't know where you know things are to put the laparoscope together. It's just like Susan said, when people and when people are half asleep, honestly, it's, you know, it's not as, as good as it is during the middle of the day. And we're all wide awake and we have everybody there that's used to doing laparoscopy during the day. Did you guys hear about the case of the French woman who delivered a 29-week abdominal pregnancy and it was viable? My, I haven't heard that one, but when I was in medical school, there was an FPOB in College Station uh-huh. that... FPOB? Yeah, a family, family practice, practice OB. doctor, okay, who was on call at the hospital and ended up going, I don't know all the details, but it was somebody who had dropped in for labor and delivery who hadn't had prenatal care, term baby, abdominal pregnancy. Wow. It was like completely on the momentum. It was it was a nightmare to deal with. The placenta was everywhere. Um, but that is that is not what we want anybody to go through. Mm-hmm. And, um, and to put this in perspective, you know, if you have this, one of the first questions is, well, is this a viable pregnancy? Can we go on to deliver? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. And there, there are always these wild and crazy cases. Anything is possible in this world, mm-hmm. but um, most ectopic pregnancies are going to be in the tube. The tube is of a very small caliber and it is not intended to get much larger than I don't know, large marble. Um, And so once you start expanding beyond that, you get bleeding and you get problems. And so the other thing to consider is that the blood supply to a baby in a pregnancy is considerably higher than than a normal blood supply. And so wherever that blood supply is established, if it gets disrupted, then it is very easy and very quick to hemorrhage and die. Mm -hmm. And so when your doc says, no, I'm really sorry, this is not viable, you know, you you could have the one in six million chance of having a pregnancy someplace in some way that happens to survive, but the risk you are taking is very much your life. This is not this is not evidence that an ectopic pregnancy can survive, and so you should not treat the mom. Um, and that's that is very important to know and to understand because Absolutely. you know the the one in six million kind of case is not. Not what we see. Yeah, I've never, I've never seen one survive. I've, I've never seen anybody yeah. have a baby like that. I don't know if you guys have, but yeah, I don't. Oh, I, I consider it as a non-viable pregnancy, and that's going to kill you if you don't, if you don't take care right. of it surgically. This, this is a completely different ballgame than when we sit there and talk with patients about, you know, doing a treatment that most likely won't work. Okay, if yeah. we have, you know, premature ovarian insufficiency or or something like that, where 
you know, we really and don't if you get it's going to work. And if you guess wrong, it could kill you. So probably not a great gamble right. to make, I would as, say. <laughs> as, much as, as much as we know you want to have a child, there are people in your life who want you more. Exactly. So we talked about treatment laparoscopically. What other treatments do we do for so ectopic pregnancies? There's a couple of different medical treatments that, um, that can be used for ectopic pregnancies. The most common and the oldest used is a medicine called methotrexate. Um, methotrexate, it has historically been used as a chemotherapy agent, but at very small dosages, um, the idea is it stops rapidly dividing cells. That's how it works for cancer and, and other kind of blood disorders. Um, and in a pregnancy, in an ectopic pregnancy, the problem is rapidly dividing cells. And so this is a medicine that will typically, before we give it, we want to make sure you're super stable in a good situation, good access to emergency follow up and care, you know, different things like that. We'll make sure your CBC, your blood count is good. We're going to make sure your liver and kidney enzymes are good. And we're going to see what your HCG level is at that moment. Okay. Because at certain high levels of HCG, we know that there are um, higher risks of failure. So we may or may not consider it a viable <laughs> option. Um, but if we decide it's a good option, then we give you the medicine and the medicine is dosed based on your height and your weight. Um, and then we watch that pregnancy hormone level, um, essentially about four days later and about seven days later. Now, between those two dates, four and seven, not when you get your shot in four. So between four and seven, we should see at least a 15, 1, 5% drop. And if we don't, then you may be a candidate for an additional injection. There's some different ways you can do methotrexate mm -hmm. as well, um, where we kind of do double injections and, and mm -hmm. things like that. But this is the most common. And then you're going to have your pregnancy hormone level checked on a regular basis. Um, closer at the beginning. Once everything's falling nicely, we may spread it out a little bit, but we're going to follow that HCG level all the way down to zero <laughs> and you need to not disappear on us. Exactly. Um, another way that you can treat ectopics that is relatively new out in the literature is doing letrozole. And that that is a, a nice one to do when you can, primarily because after giving methotrexate, you have to wait at least three months before getting pregnant again, mm -hmm. because it's it's a chemotherapy. And you, to, and you have to stop your prenatal vitamins because we need you to not have high folic acid levels. It's the one mm -hmm. time we don't want you to have high folic yeah, acid levels. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, so letrozole can be really helpful for people who want to have a quicker turnaround time to try and get pregnant again. Um, it follows a lot of the same rules as methotrexate. You know, if you, if you have something on ultrasound, that's big enough to see, you know, certainly if you have a heartbeat, then letrozole or methotrexate are, are not appropriate. Um, and when you see particularly large pregnancies that are not in the right place, you know, oftentimes there's a much higher risk of failure. And so we're, we're watching closely and we're a little bit less likely to do the medical forms of treatment. But um, the nice thing about letrozole is it's, it's a pill you take, you know, take a higher dose each day and try it for roughly 10 days, two weeks, somewhere in there. And a lot of times it works really well by cutting off the estrogen and blocking some of the hormonal synthesis that helps support the pregnancy. So I think that will probably gain more and more traction um, the longer that that's been available. Mm -hmm. 
I'm a big fan of the letrozole option. I think yeah, people tolerate it very well. And not having, it's hard enough having an ectopic pregnancy, but having an ectopic pregnancy and then feeling a little crummy from the methotrexate and then having to wait the three months, thats it's hard. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the surgical treatment options. What are the, in general, two ways that you can approach a tubal ectopic pregnancy surgically? So we easily are able to do it laparoscopically. Um, We can either make an incision in the fallopian tube and shell out the pregnancy. depends on the size and the location. More commonly, I think, at least in our practice, we tend to remove the whole tube um, just because it's really hard to shell everything out. And in the process of doing that, you may leave some behind and then you not only have you had surgery, but then you may also still need methotrexate and the tube may still be damaged. So I think, you know, kind of our philosophy is, you know, if you have really bad tubes, we're just going to set you back up for another ectopic pregnancy again. So we tend to take the tube out. We think that's a better alternative. And if you have another tube that looks good, that's great. You can get pregnant with that tube. Um, and there's, but typically, that. there's actually studies looking that your pregnancy outcomes after what's called a salpingectomy, which it means taking out the tube versus a salpingostomy, which means making little incision in the tube and, and scooping out the ectopic that you are more likely to be successful with less intervention being down a bad tube than leaving the tube that's not working so well in. Well, and I think too, people feel like that, oh, well, that pregnancy is just right in that tube and you just go in and pull it out. Well, it's actually not right in the tube. It actually grows into the wall of the tube. Mm -hmm. And so you always are going to leave some of it behind. And so a lot of times if it's really grown in there quite a bit, you end up getting, having to give the patient methotrexate as well. And then the tube still doesn't do very well. Mm-hmm. And there's always pathology that's done to make sure that 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 truly mm-hmm. like you got it, that there was a pregnancy there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is what is one of the rare types of ectopic pregnancies that coexists with another pregnancy? What's that called? Called a heterotopic. Heterotopic. Pregnancy. So that's where essentially you have a pregnancy in the uterus and you have a pregnancy somewhere that it's not supposed to be usually in a fallopian tube. And those those are very rare. I'm sorry. They are very rare, but they're not impossible. What happens with those? Well, provided you don't treat them with methotrexate. So that's the key. You got to make sure that somebody doesn't have a heterotopic pregnancy when you treat them with methotrexate, which you're looking obviously at the uterus. But um, but basically they do fine. I've actually had one of those and (laughs) the time we it was so early we didn't realize that she had a heterotopic pregnancy but she had a healthy went on to have a healthy pregnancy inside her uterus after after they've had that other ectopic pregnancy removed say that again they they do fine after they've had the ectopic pregnancy removed yeah yeah they do i just want to make it clear because it kind of sounds like oh they just do fine (laughs) yeah no 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 after the ectopic pregnancy but just the key is you you gotta that's that's an absolute for surgery you can't treat with anything else you have to do surgery on those patients Mm -hmm. yeah All right. Is there anything that we missed on ectopics? I'm going to mention this because I see this once in a while. Um, Generally, when I go in to do surgery for an ectopic pregnancy, I always look in the uterus first. I tend to do hysteroscopies on these patients because there's definitely things that you can see that are that could be a very small intrauterine pregnancy that you can remove with the hysteroscope, send that off to pathology, and even sometimes prevent you from having to have the laparoscopy portion. Um, 
Historically, we would do a DNC, which is a blind procedure where you can scrape the inside of the uterus to make sure that we don't have pregnancy tissue. Um, lots of people still do that. That's that's just not what I typically do at this point. Um, but I, I think we've all had that person who they've had a potential ectopic pregnancy. They've gone to have a laparoscopy. They couldn't see anything and then pregnancy hormone levels kept on rising, but abnormally, and then come to find out it was an abnormal pregnancy in the uterus that couldn't be identified at that point in time. And so, so just to be clear, though, you hysteroscope them at the point that you know it's an abnormal pregnancy. You don't ever do that to look for a normal pregnancy. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we know that we know that this is a pregnancy that is it's not viable. It is not right. going to result in a baby. And so it's either DNC or hysteroscopy and then doing the surgery. So um, I, I've seen that more and more in recent years um, and, and realize also sometimes if you we go in for a laparoscopy, we may not see anything in your belly. Your tubes may look perfect. Your ovaries may look perfect. We may not be able to find exactly where it is and you might end up having to have um, one of the medication regimens in addition. So Even after surgery, yeah. There's there there's a lot of as you said, no no rules when it comes to mm-hmm. ectopic pregnancies. So just you know, we we know it's a very challenging thing for you to go through, but know that as we're going through it with you, we're we're figuring out what's going to be the best path to not only keep you safe but also ensure you're going to have the best outcomes in the long term. Keep in mind, if you have an abnormal pregnancy and you are anywhere close to our radar for an ectopic, pretty much everybody in our office knows about you. (laughs) The nurse is the IVF coordinator. I sent out an email this week about somebody so everybody would know about this person. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the one thing where the docs always talk to each other. Hey, Mm. this person is circling. If she calls, listen to her. You know, pay pay extra level of attention with this in the back of your mind. Um, The other caveat with ectopics that we talked, we touched on a little bit is the cervical ectopics. And these are a bit different. Number one, location. So they are located far lower down than in a tubal pregnancy. Now, tubes, they can't really expand, but they have more capacity for expanding than the cervix really does. Cervix is a bit stiffer. And the blood supply that can establish is um, is just as robust as it is in any other kind of pregnancy, ectopic or otherwise. The trickiest part about cervical ectopics is that it is much, much harder to stop that bleeding. And so when we have any suspicion of a cervical ectopic at all, that that takes everything that we just talked about, that elevated level of concern, and and jacks it up by another two hundred percent. Because Stressful. the last thing that you want to do is go in and accidentally dislodge it when you are not prepared to deal with that. And so, oftentimes with cervical ectopics, like these are usually the ones where I call my you know my super surgical associate. Yeah, like. You call the family planning people, you call the MIG surgeons, you call the people who can bail you out because this is this is a hard surgery. And sometimes it's really easy, but you don't know that until after the fact. And cervical bleeding 
up high where you can't easily throw a stitch, where you can't easily put an anti-bleeding agent, where you cannot easily even put pressure on it terribly well. Um, those are an extra level of, of concern. So there's a couple ways that we can deal with them. You can deal with them surgically, you can deal with them medically, but it's a, it's a very, very closely watched uh, sphincter tightening scenario. Well, the other really scary part about those two is a lot of times if somebody's had a C-section before, that's the thinnest part of their uterus. And I'm talking like instead of being inches thick, it's like millimeters thick. And literally that pregnancy is right next to the thin, thin, thin uterine uterus that's left. And then right above that's usually the bladder. And so, you know, there's like Carrie said, you can't really scrape in there because you could poke right into your bladder. I mean, there's just a lot of structures there that are really scary with a lot of blood supply going to that location. So yeah, those okay. that does increase our anxiety by about 200%, I would agree, <laughs> yeah. if it's a cervical ectopic pregnancy. Yeah, or or a C-section scar pregnancy mm -hmm. too, when it's just, you know, a yeah. hair higher on that real thin, thin line. Yeah. It's just... Ooh, those those are not fun. So um, just know when we're asking you to come back 18 million times, that is the That's reason why. <laughs> and we know it's an inconvenience and we know you're annoyed and we know you're worried and we are equally as worried, but we're watching you closely because that we want to keep you safe. Yes. All right. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear from you. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. We are on YouTube. Please leave us a like. Please leave us a comment. Say hi. We'd like to hear from you. And uh, we just want to hear you say hi. You can also visit fertilitydocsensister.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously in our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas, and if there's something specific you'd like to hear in our upcoming book, let us know what you want to hear and read about. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Millions of women worldwide swear by Ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Therologix for balancing hormone levels. Therologix also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Therologix products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Therologix, supplements from science.